This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Green News Report, Citizen Radio, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Activism from Best of the Left, The Jimmy Dore Show, The David Pakman Show, and On the Media. And you can just think of this episode as a quick reminder of why it's so important to support independent media. It's just your opinion. That seems to be what suffices for news, somebody's opinion. And while we expect that from the right-wing loons, we don't really expect that from CBS News and 60 Minutes. But I guess maybe now that's what we should start expecting. I know. A very strange, very bizarre report from 60 Minutes. On top of recent reporting failures at the venerable news magazine, including on Benghazi, now this, 60 Minutes, aired what is being described as a hit piece on America's clean energy industry with correspondent Leslie Stahl. The federal government has allocated a total of $150 billion to clean tech through loans, grants, and tax breaks with little to show for it. The taxpayers have lost a lot of money in the general clean tech area. 60 Minutes only looked at the Department of Energy's loan program intended to boost America's clean energy industry, but strangely, CBS focused only on the 3% of companies that failed and didn't even mention the 97% of companies that succeeded with the loan program. That bears repeating. 97% of those who received federal loans under this green energy loan program succeeded. 3% have so far failed. That is a higher, a better success rate than the private venture capital industry. The government did a better job of picking winners and losers than uh, private uh, investors. Yeah. But 60 Minutes didn't mention a word of it. No. And in a follow-up with Climate Progress, clean tech executive and chemical engineer Robert Rapier, who was interviewed for the 60 Minutes piece, said that CBS edited out everything he said about the successes of clean tech and kept only the negatives. Many energy reporters have also noted CBS News ignored the most important point of data on clean energy, the rapidly falling price of renewables versus the unrelenting rising price of oil. And most importantly, 60 Minutes didn't even mention climate change once, which is the whole point of breaking free from fossil fuels, giving viewers the misleading impression that we actually have a choice on whether to switch to clean energy. Didn't mention climate change, didn't mention the successes of clean energy, edited out uh, interviewees saying that clean energy was a big success kind of sounds like Fox News to me. Yes, and as you've reported over at bradblog.com, there's a reason for that. There is a reason for that. As of February 2011, the president of CBS News is a guy by the name of David Rhodes. David Rhodes was formerly the VP of News at Fox News. That's right. The VP of Fox News now runs CBS News. I think that helps to put in context their failure with the clean tech report, Benghazi, and all of the other failures at 60 Minutes, the once great news magazine. Just a general question. What the fuck happened to 60 Minutes? Because I remember growing up, that was like basically the stalwart example of excellence in broadcast journalism. I just remember Andy Rooney yelling at me. Well, yeah, that was like the goofy last two minutes. But like 
prior to that, it was like these really hard hitting, like long form investigative pieces. I don't know. I always remember thinking 60 minutes was like the standard of journalism, basically growing up. Um, at least for TV journalism. But I won't say recently because, you know, no show that's been on that long has a spotless track record. Right. But especially recently, there's been sort of this snowballing phenomenon going on where first they had this really embarrassing um, Benghazi Benghazi, story by Laura Logan where she cited extensively this source that had been discredited by like the cia and like the republicans have made such a mess out of benghazi that literally whenever i hear the word like tomorrow you could say like terrorists rigged a bomb and all the schools blew up in benghazi and i just hear the word benghazi and i go yeah like it's just become so silly to me at this point well yeah it's um you know i think it makes sense to never trust the government's official narrative but this was such just a clear fishing expedition by the right. You know, they were just looking for anything that could possibly perceive be perceived as a scandal to nail the Obama administration, particularly Hillary Clinton. Um, so, but now, and there was something else with 60 Minutes, too, or am I thinking of the extension of the Benghazi thing? Uh, I mean, there was probably a Snowden thing. That's just me guessing. And then something... Yeah, something recent did happen. Oh, no, it was for the NSA. Right. When they had, like, the dude with, like, all these incredible ties. Oh, and then. Essentially just do a long commercial for the NSA. Oh, and then, remember, they also did a long commercial for Amazon and the dumb drones that aren't ever going to really be a thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, So those are just some recent examples of 60 Minutes not doing serious journalism, just being a mouthpiece for the government or... um, you know, a mouthpiece for right-wing conspiracies or a mouthpiece for corporations in the case of Amazon. So Camille sent along a Think Progress article about the latest travesty committed by 60 Minutes. And the article is written by Joe Rome and Emily Atkin. And I'll link to it in the episode recap at wearecitizenradio.com. But... So the article just opens, what's the matter with 60 Minutes? Which I think is a really good question, and I would actually like to see, like... Is 60 Minutes CBS? Yes. Okay, so I think, unless this is where the article is going, uh, a former Fox News executive just took over CBS. Because I saw somebody, I think it was like Joan Walsh, tweet today or retweet someone who was like, yeah, who would have thought of a former Fox person goes to CBS, they would go to the shitter. Yeah, because it... yeah, it, it definitely seems like they no longer have journalistic standards and they're like, I never felt like when I was watching 60 Minutes before. It was like propaganda. That someone had an agenda. Right. Do you know what I mean? But now it feels very much like that. Same so, with the press. I just wondered if that was just us becoming grown ups. No, it, like 60 Minutes is actually different. Uh, so the article goes on. That was the question asked by many after the program on Sunday aired what has since been slammed as an inaccurate portrayal of the clean tech industry. Besides the fact that the piece made no mention of climate change, which is one of the stronger arguments being behind clean tech, the report largely passed over the recent explosive growth in wind power, solar power, LED lights, and electric vehicles. But it's not like 60 Minutes wasn't told about the recent major successes in the clean tech industry. Robert Raper, 
uh, chief technology officer of America International, was interviewed by 60 Minutes and spoke to them at length about clean tech's many successes. But the only comments included were ones about clean tech investor Vinod Kosla, who CBS asserts is known as the father of the clean tech revolution. And then in parentheses, it says he is not. Um, so again, this is, and especially with climate, like that is Fox News all over it, you know, yeah, or it's sort of like if you're talking about the clean tech industry, it, ma- it makes a lot of sense to mention climate change, which again is not a biased thing to mention. It's not a liberal perspective. It's the scientific perspective. Climate change is real. It's happening. Overwhelming consensus. Um, so it's, it's very, very odd. And it's especially upsetting because, you know, I know like it's sort of a joke that only older people watch CBS, but it's also like, it's a basic channel, right? Like you don't need some kind of special cable package to watch it. So it's also the preferred news source for like a lot of poor people as well. Yeah. Well, it's also, I think by now, this is something Alice and I used to talk about years ago. I think by now, like 24 hour news has become such a fucking joke that people, uh, people still kind of think CNN doesn't have an agenda because but they've had to apologize for so much they've fucked up so much from the the boston bombing to sanjay gupta having to apologize for his fucking fraudulent marijuana reporting or like when he went after michael moore about health insurance and had to apologize again uh i mean they're a fucking joke but i think people still think cnn is like in the middle Fox News is right wing. What's, what's especially is frustrating but, to this about this is like on the twenty four news channels, it makes sense that like you know they have to talk, they have to blather. That, well, that's why I wanted to say is people just think like things like sixty minutes are the news. No, what I was going to say is like people expect you know anchors to blather like Sanjay Gupta on CNN, but sixty minutes was known for being like the adults in the room, yeah. sort of stepping back and doing these long form investigative pieces where right. it's like they should. People watch 60 Minutes believing that they have fact-checked everything meticulously. Right. So when you say stuff like, we're going to talk about clean tech but not talk about climate change. Here's an Amazon product. Isn't it neat? No. Um, you know, people believe that 60 Minutes is like telling them the truth. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Did I get anything wrong there? Did I get anything wrong? Did I fairly summarize what's in that package? Did I get anything wrong there? Did I get anything wrong there or did I confuse any of the details? Did I get anything wrong there?
the reason I ask that question of guests on this show sometimes is because inevitably, when you are spending 6,000 words a night explaining the news, inevitably, some of your words will be wrong. So like last night, there was this amazing moment at the end of our lead story where I say goodnight to our guest. And he says goodnight, and I think it's over. And then he says really loud, and obviously not to me, he says, there is an error. This is a very strange moment. Watch. Congratulations on this ruling. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mike. I should tell you that we received a response from a representative Wait, for the Koch brothers. There is tonight. an error. Hello? Hello? I couldn't see him. I didn't know what was going on. He wasn't. And he was right. There was an error. That was a really strange way for me to find out about it, but it's true. The story that we were doing there was about a federal court order against Florida's drug test the poor law. And I had characterized it as an action by a federal appeals court, when in fact it was an action by a federal district court. So really, there was an error. He was right. And I'm very sorry that there was an error. I mean, you never like to get stuff wrong, but it does happen from time to time. And when we get stuff wrong on this show, I try to make sure that we correct it. I don't mind making corrections. That said, don't push it. We cover a lot of right-wing politics on this show. I mean, nothing against Democrats, nothing against liberals, but the selection of stories that we cover on this show reflects my belief as the host that the most interesting story in American politics this decade is the effort by the Republican Party to remake itself in the wake of the disastrous Bush-Cheney era and the divides within the party and the divides particularly within the party itself and, and the conservative movement that thinks it controls the party. I think those are the most interesting and consequential fights in American politics today. And I think that the resolution of those fights, who's going to win and who's going to lose, is truly an open question and a fascinating and important one for who we are as a country. So we cover the conservative movement a lot on this show. And in so doing, we occasionally find people who have been mentioned in our coverage who are absolutely outraged that they have been mentioned in our coverage. People who are not used to being talked about by someone who does not take their instructions. And so what happens is they tend to try to instruct me as to how I ought to talk about them. And the conservative political figures who you can most count on to threaten to sue you and call your boss and scream about their victimization as loud as they can whenever they get mentioned by name in a way they do not control are, of course, the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch who inherited a privately held oil and chemical company from their dad and thereby became almost unimaginably wealthy. If Charles and David Koch were one Koch brother instead of two, if they were one guy, they would in fact be the second richest guy on earth. And they have been political figures as long as they have been richer than God. When David Koch ran for vice president on the Libertarian Party line in 1980, he minted gold dimes with his own head on them as a campaign trinket. The Koch brothers have so much money, one of the Koch brothers literally made his own money with his own head on it as a means of trying to persuade you to vote him into the White House. Wow, that's the level of money and that's the level of politics at which these guys have always operated. And when you operate at that level, I think maybe you are not used to ever hearing things that you do not want to hear, particularly things about yourself. And so, very frequently, when we cover the Koch brothers, we then hear from the Koch brothers' lawyer. Our lead story last night was about that Florida drug test, the poor law, which was smacked down by a federal judge on New Year's Eve. The law's been blocked by the courts twice now. It was hugely expensive when it was in effect. And it turned out that when it was in effect, it turned up levels of drug use by the poor in Florida that were roughly one quarter the level of drug use in the population at large. 
So the Florida drug test, the poor law, has been an expensive and embarrassing failure from the very beginning. It has failed as a fiscal policy. It has failed legally. It has failed as a bolster for the stereotypes on which it was based. Nevertheless, the political right in this country has successfully marketed that failed Florida policy to lots of other states. We highlighted local reporting last night from states like Missouri and Kansas and Minnesota who have all adopted versions of the failed Florida law and are all now either reaping the negative consequences of their laws or are worried that they're about to. This is an interesting political question, right, about how obviously failed policies nevertheless get picked up and moved into different states, even as they fail everywhere they are tried. And it's therefore an interesting political question as to who does that? Who tells states that they ought to do what Florida did with a policy like this? Well, in the case of this Florida law that we looked at last night, it's a group called the Florida Foundation for Government Accountability. They went to public hearings in Georgia to share the good news about Florida's terrible policy and why Georgia should adopt it. They went to a national meeting of the group ALEC in Arizona to market Florida's terrible policy to state legislators from all over the country. Quote, ALEC members should look to Florida for free market Medicaid and welfare reforms. So who is this group telling state legislators from all over the country that they ought to adopt Florida's terrible law? Turns out they're part of a huge network of state-based conservative think tanks that is, frankly, kind of designed to not look like a network. They all look vaguely indigenous. They all have what look to be locally specific names. But their funding, if you follow it, comes in part from a central source of big money corporate donors, including groups affiliated with the Koch brothers. Now, we are not the first news outlet to report on the Koch brothers' funding distribution networks and the groups, small and large, all over the country who've received funding through the various mechanisms that the Koch brothers have set up to support conservative candidates and conservative activism and conservative research and conservative advocacy. And the Koch brothers' lawyers are not denying that they fund these networks or that the Florida Foundation for Government Accountability is one of the groups that has been funded through these networks. But... They really do not want anyone reporting any connection between what those groups do and who gives them the money that they do it with. The Koch brothers' letter to us includes a script that they want me to read to you on the air denouncing my own reporting on the Florida drug test, the poor story, and telling you that they are not involved in promoting any such issue. I am not going to read their script. I'm not going to renounce my own reporting on this story because the reporting on this story stands. It is true. And now we also know that the Koch brothers do not wish to be associated with the work and the causes that they have funded through their multi-million dollar, multi-year massive funding of networks of conservative organizations. You not wanting to be known for something that you have done is not the same thing as you not having done it. The Koch brothers do also say that when we contacted them for comment on our story, it was too late in the day for them and that we should have given them more time to respond. And you know what? That is a fair point. We will endeavor in the future to contact them earlier in the day, and I'm sorry that our call came late. But we will not stop reporting on the political actions and the consequences of the political actions of rich and powerful men, even if they send angry letters every time we do it. I will not read scripts provided to me by anyone else. I do not play requests. I will happily make corrections when I do get things wrong. We do it on the show all the time. But I will not renounce or retract reporting that is true, even if the subjects of that reporting don't like it.
Being a political actor means being subject to political scrutiny. If you don't want to be known for it, don't do it. Don't just complain when people accurately describe your actions. Your actions are what we are reporting on, and we will do that on our own terms as a free press. If you want to control the words that are used when your actions are discussed, then speak for yourself. I will renew my invitation now. Mr. Koch, or the other Mr. Koch, you are welcome on this show anytime. I would love to discuss these matters with you right here, in person, live and without interruption, anytime. And it would be easy to set up. You apparently already have my number. There's no sense in dancing around the subject. A wound gets worse when it's treated with neglect. Well, don't turn now. There's nothing here to fear. Finally, activists are scrambling in response to the news that Comcast, the country's largest cable TV provider, is set to buy Time Warner Cable, the number two company. The behemoth created would be the dominant provider of TV channels and Internet connections in the United States, reaching about one in three homes. A New York Times report stated that, quote, despite combining the two largest cable operators in the country, a merger may have little impact on consumers, close quote. That's because the two don't currently compete in any cable markets. It's a funny logic that since consumers already have no choice, what's the harm in further monopolization? But it's also important to see that this isn't just a cable TV merger. Though the antitrust considerations of a major producer, Comcast's NBC properties, becoming the dominant distributor would seem obvious enough. But Comcast is more than the biggest cable company. It's the biggest internet service provider and one of the biggest home phone providers. Made even bigger, as the group Public Knowledge pointed out, Comcast would be, quote, the bully in the schoolyard, able to dictate terms to content creators, internet companies, other communications networks that must interconnect with it, and distributors who must access its content, close quote. And it's impossible to believe that they would make this move if they didn't think it would increase their profits, which ultimately come from consumers. That's why the LA Times' Michael Hiltzik headlined his February 12th piece, Comcast to buy Time Warner Cable, say goodbye to the public interest. Hiltzik notes that FCC Chair Tom Wheeler has claimed that when competition is high, regulation can be low. But when competition is low, we are willing to act in the public interest. This will give us a chance to see if he really means it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. 
Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Now, a lot of you might know that Media Matters is a group uh, that is making sure that the conservative media is kept in check. Now, the basic thing that they've done for a long time, which I love, is all, they just quote the conservative media, particularly Fox News. And that enrages Fox News. They're like, how dare you quote us over and over again? Now, oftentimes, Fox News will do the usual BS criticism of, oh, they took us out of context. And then Media Matters will put the whole segment up and say, here's the context. And it'll look just as bad. And they'll be like, God damn it, I told you to stop quoting us. Well, Fox News uh, might have their way. Because Media Matters believes that they've kicked Fox News' ass so much and so hard that the war is pretty much over. That's awesome. Now, uh, back in 2011, uh, the founder of Media Matters, David Brock, had declared an all-out, quote, war on Fox. And he had said, Our formula is this. We go out, we hit people in the mouth. Number one. Number one. And apparently they did. Now, uh, Media Matters Executive Vice President Angelo uh, Carasone has come out and said, quote, The war on Fox is over. And he continues by saying, and it's not just that it's over, but it was very successful. To a large extent, we won. Damn. Now, look, uh, there are very good points to be made that that is exactly what happened. Number one, Glenn Beck was absolutely driven off of Fox News. And uh, even Roger Ailes, who runs Fox News, said they needed a, quote, course correction. Damn. Now, one of the reasons Beck left is not because the guys running Fox News are not just as big a lunatics as Glenn Beck. It's because his advertisers were driven away. Because he'd say terrible things like, oh, President Obama's race against white people. And that actually was among the saner things he said. He said absolutely wrong and outrageous. But he kept going further and further out, uh, making that comment look tame by comparison until all the advertisers said no mas. It turns out Media Matters is right. They were not quoted out of context. That was in context. And yes, they say terrible things on Fox News all the time. That's point number one. Point number two, and by the way, Sean Hannity's not on 9 o'clock anymore either, which is the second most important spot for Fox News. They brought in Megyn Kelly for a softer touch. So uh, Fox News is not going as hard right wing as they used to. I know, (laughs) I mean, it's damning with faint praise, right? Uh, But that was point number one. But more importantly, they said, look, when Media Matters got into the mix, and very importantly, the guy who started all this actually was not with Media Matters. It was Robert Greenwald, who did the documentary back in 2004 uh, called Outfoxed. When they both started on this trek, you have to remember, because I was there at the time. I was in the media. I was doing a radio show. And when you told people Fox News was conservative, they said, oh, no. When you told them it was right, it was, no, 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 no. Look, they, they don't cover news in the exact same way CNN does, but CNN is the liberals. And they actually, people, I know it seems impossible to believe, but back then people would, with a straight face, say they're fair and balanced. Now, eventually it became impossible to say that because of the overwhelming weight of the evidence, but somebody had to collect that evidence. Now, when you go to Robert Greenwald and you ask him about this, and he said, look, 
When we started the film, liberals and progressives and Democrats were saying, oh, Fox is not really so bad, because it's really just a couple of commentators. So he says, so now we've come along in positive way in terms of people realizing that they are a channel dedicated to one point of view. And it's true. So not only do liberals and Democrats recognize it, but almost everybody in the country recognizes it. So that is, in some sense, mission accomplished, and the war is over, at least in that aspect. But now you still got to keep an eye on them. They're still up to no good, and still trying to paint Jesus and Santa and the Easter Bunny white, and all the fun things that they do over at Fox News. But there's nothing wrong with a conservative channel as long as everybody treats it as a conservative channel. The only part of the mission that is not accomplished, they didn't talk about it here, uh, but I still see it, and I think it's still a very important part of what Fox News is, does. Is they still drive the agenda on so many issues, right? Now, again, back in the bad old days, before MSNBC had any prog- progressive voices on, in in the mid two thousands, when Fox News drove an agenda, MSNBC and CNN would flip over immediately, and the whole country would be talking about uh, whatever issue that. Uh, Fox News had made up that day with a total right-wing framing. Now there's a little bit more balance, but still to this day, a lot of times Fox News will drive an issue and they will talk about something like Benghazi so long that CNN will say, well, I guess that's a real... Benghazi, goddammit! IRS scandal! Now later you find out that the IRS so-called scandal was actually done by a conservative and he targeted not just conservative groups but also liberal groups. And it was just a filing error. But... Do you, did Fox News let it go? No. Now, did the rest of the media come back and say, oh, we're so sorry for covering that made-up scandal? No, they never said that, right? So they're still important because the one group that is still motivated to pretend that Fox News is a real, quote-unquote, news organization is the rest of the news. Why? Because in cable TV, about a third of the people once worked at Fox News, they're not going to say they worked in a propaganda outfit. A third of the people are looking forward to working at Fox News. So look at Howard Kurtz, worked on CNN, now he works at Fox News. Bill Hemmer used to work on CNN, now works on Fox News. You think that those guys are going to say, oh, Fox News is total crap? No, they're looking forward to a payday from Fox News one day. They're not going to say that. It's not in their personal interest to say that. So they're the last vestige. If you ask conservatives today, is Fox News conservative? They say, of course it is. Liberals, of course. Moderates, of course Fox News is conservative. The only people in the country that still deny it are the people that work in cable news. And by the way, the other third, they have friends at Fox News. And it's understandable. They don't want to say that their producer friend, their reporter friend, their editor friend at Fox News is a sellout that works for a Republican propaganda machine. It's personal for them. So they have to retain that fiction at all costs. But overall, Media Matters and Robert Greenwald are right that at least for the great majority of the American people, they have defeated the idea that Fox News is some sort of fair and balanced central news that that does mainstream reporting. That is just nonsense. It's conservative propaganda, and almost the entire country recognizes it as such. By the way, one uh, fun thing you can look forward to for the 10th year anniversary of Odd Fox. Uh, Brave New Films is going to release a new movie about Fox. And that'll be the bookends for uh, that terrible decade where people took Fox News seriously. Time it was, and what a time it was, it was. A time of innocence, a time of confidences.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're super frustrated about the state of the media, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, brave new films. So let's face it, though. Even those of us who are plugged into current events and motivated to stay involved in organizing hit the wall this time of year. Winter takes its toll. It's hard to fight the urge to stay in, curled up on the couch with a movie. So this month, let yourself off the hook. Everyone needs to take a break and engage in some self-care. But thanks to Brave New Films, you can do it completely guilt-free. Relax while supporting an important outlet and catching up on the history behind issues you care about. Robert Greenwald revolutionized activist documentary filmmaking when he launched Brave New Films in 2002. Moved by the voter rights abuses in the 2000 election, Greenwald discovered audiences were similarly hungry for in-depth investigations told through personal, relatable stories. You may have seen some of his work without even realizing it. Take this opportunity to binge on what you've missed. Brave New Films was behind Koch Brothers Exposed, Walmart, The High Cost of Low Price, and, of course, Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism. Outfox might be of particular interest by the time you finish this podcast, and it is both informative and cathartic for anyone frustrated with the current state of the media. All of the documentaries, save the new one, Unmanned, America's Drone Wars, are available on Netflix and or the Brave New Films YouTube channel to stream for free. They're easily shareable, so the fastest way to support their work is to simply pass on the clips you enjoy. Unmanned is currently being screened around the country. You can sign up to host a screening at unmanned.warcost.com. And if Greenwald is true to form, once the screening tour has ended, you can expect the new film to be available online for free as well. In addition to the full-length documentary work, Brave New Films produces quick-strike video shorts, such as the series on John McCain from 2008 that was instrumental in amplifying the missteps of the McCain campaign, like his now-infamous Bomb Bomb Iran song. Visit bravenewfilms.org for information on all their productions. Links to trailers and screenings can be found there, as well as in the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. Just watching the work and having your eyes open is a near-revolutionary act these days. As Brave New Films says on their website, quote, You are critical to advancing these hard-hitting political campaigns. We can't create a nation of socially conscious activists alone. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage and this week's Oh My God segment uh, is David Barton, right? Now, David Barton, if you don't know who he is, he's a big-time Christian. He's a frequent guest on the Glenn Beck Show. And he was Time Magazine. He made Time Magazine's list of America's 25 most influential evangelical Christians. Wow. Wow, right? Yeah. Uh, he also, Why do they have that list? He also wrote a book. Yeah, he, uh, he wrote a book called uh, <laughs> The Jefferson Lies. And, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, so he wrote the Jefferson Lies, and the History News Network voted that book the least credible history book in print. <laughs> you know, he not only wrote the Jefferson Lies, he also wrote the Wheezy Deception. <laughs> Boy, you got to be a you got to be a 
a seventies sitcom aficionado to get that joke. I get it. I thought the Bible was the least credible history. <laughs> it might be. That's funny. Zing. Zing. <laughs> Take that. Take it, Christians. Okay. Uh, now the uh, and the book publisher uh, Thomas Nelson Book Publishers, uh, they're the largest publisher of Christian books. They 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 stopped. They dropped him. They dropped his book. Oh wow! Yeah, they dropped him. But uh, let me just say, how bad is your book that a Christian <laughs> book publisher drops you? Huh. It, wow. I mean, the bar's pretty low for Christian books, well, is all I'm saying. Either. All right, so here's what he has to say. Him and Glenn Beck sat down. By the way, Glenn Beck wrote the foreword to that book that was considered the least Ooh. accurate, the least credible history book in print. It was a very backward forward. Well, it's not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even that credible that Glenn Beck right. So. I'm sorry, Frank. Say it again. I missed it. I said it's not that credible that Glenn Beck could even write. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, I think he, he has not only he has a ghost writer, he has a ghost reader. <laughs> He's a ghost reader. He has a ghost someone to move his lips for him when he reads too. <laughs> so here's what. So He's here, not they're, a smart man is what you're saying. Not smart. Not smart. His, but his ghost is spelled without an H. Yes. <laughs> Ghost. He's a bad speller. He's a bad speller is the point there. I'm also a bad speller. So here is here here they are having a chat about what to do about guns, right? Uh, did, did you see the Lincoln movie? I did not. You I did. wrote a review on it, but the profanity... No, he didn't see it, but he did write a review on the Lincoln movie. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. <sighs> what? Didn't see the movie, but decided to write a review of it. This is, by the way, this isn't about guns like I thought. This is, this is, that's coming up later. Well, he, he knows the ending. This is about the Lincoln movie. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Let's hear it again. Uh, did you see the Lincoln movie? I did not. You I did? wrote a review on it, but the profanity drove me off. It, it's a remarkable movie, and I wonder. The profanity in Lincoln. What? What? He says, he the, says S-H-I-T once, I think. The profanity in Lincoln drove him off. Wow. Yeah, okay. I'd love to well, talk. Well, because I think it's like that scene where Lincoln says, I need a night at the theater like I need a hole in the head. <laughs> you know, it's very uh, kind of... Uh, what does this guy do? Just uh, review Pete's dragon over and over again? Uh, <laughs> I, th I think the profanity he was talking about was emancipation. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so here we go. But the profanity drove me off. It's a remarkable movie, and I wonder, I'd love to talk to somebody like you to see how much of it is, is real. Because he was very, in this movie at least. Yeah, I'd like to talk to somebody like you. You know, somebody who has the least credible history book in print <laughs> to see how much of this movie was real. Very conniving. Um, uh, he worked the system. I mean, he was very Barack Obama. He worked the system. So he compared. So yes, Jefferson. I don't know if you just realized what Glenn Beck just did. He just made an equivalency between Thomas Jefferson and no, Barack Obama. Lincoln, Lincoln. I'm sorry. What did I say? Lincoln. I meant Lincoln. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Right. Thanks. Thanks for correcting me. But in their devilishness, in their conniving. Yes. Yeah, they're conniving. Mm -hmm. Every way he possibly could. Yeah. And, and that, that's a problem that there was also in the movie because when you look back to the passage of the 13th Amendment, it wasn't the wheeling, dealing kind of backroom deals and, and smoke-filled. It didn't happen that way. You had an over, and great proof that it didn't happen, is the vote that happened on passage. It wasn't like a close vote that I've got to get some extra votes and I've got to wheel and deal. It was slam dunk big time. I mean, it was an 80% vote going wow. through Congress. Okay, what was actually went through Congress, you idiot, <laughs> was to change the Constitution. You need a two-thirds vote, you idiot. 
which is what they got in Congress, you moron. They needed 116 votes in Congress. They got 119. You stupid ass. <laughs> Hold on, wait a minute, Jimmy. Are you saying uh, three votes over what they needed? Yes. Lamb dunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's using those. Uh, I think he's using those same pollers that predicted Mitt Romney's landslide. Yeah. Yeah, he's right. using those same same guys. He has a little bit more to say. So it's not like I was having wow. to do backroom deals to get support. It, I mean, it just it's it went Holy through Congress. Holy cow, David! I wish now I had unseen that movie. I wish I could unsee it. <laughs> wow! I wish I could unsee this clip. How about that? I wish I could unlisten to you, you idiot. Oh wait, I thought the yeah the movie's wrong. David Barton is right, Glenn. Right. He uh, Glenn Beck wants to unsee it because David Barton, who hasn't seen it, <laughs> has pointed out that it's wrong. <laughs> that could not be more perfect. That's right. He wished that he didn't see it because a guy who hasn't said it's messed up. Oh, that... Now I think David Barton wants to see it so that he can unsee it. Last week, as a complete joke, I pretended to open the show with the huge leading story that Justin Bieber, the pop singer, had been arrested for drunk driving. I'm not even going to introduce this clip from MSNBC. I'm just going to play it. I think that the clip is indistinguishable from a parody. This is the clip. Uh, and said that in a short period of time he wants recommendations. But I, I think at this point we should uh, seriously consider uh, not... Congresswoman Harmon, let me interrupt you just for a moment. We've got some breaking news out of Miami. Stand by, if you will. Right now in Miami, Justin Bieber has been arrested on a number of charges. The judge is reading the charges, including resisting arrest and driving under the influence. He's appearing now before the judge for his bond hearing. Let's watch. Number two, Monroe. Craig, on behalf of the state. All right. Mr. Perez and Mr. Craig. The important conversation about the NSA with a former member of Congress about what is the NSA doing? Let's figure out whether these techniques and strategies being employed by the NSA are legal or illegal. Excuse me, Congresswoman, Justin Bieber is in court for drunk driving. This has become a situation where corporate media is a parody or satire of itself. I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. Right. Uh, I, it, it truly is all about money and ratings. And I'm shocked that they were talking about the NSA in the first place. <laughs> but I guess that is good for ratings because it's controversial. It angers people. It, it fires people up. Yeah. But uh, nothing's as juicy as, as Justin Bieber getting arrested, I guess. Yeah, we, we need to go away from president. Imagine the, the next thing is going to be tomorrow is the State of the Union address. In the middle of the State of the Union address, maybe maybe MSNBC or Fox News or CNN will cut away, Lewis, because Lady Gaga has gone vegan, from vegetarian to vegan or something like that. And that's huge. It's just huge, huge news. 
I, I don't even know what to say about this. This is where we are right now with corporate media. Let's leave the conversation about the NSA uh, tactics, which affect hundreds of millions or more people around the, the world. And instead, let's go to a video of Justin Bieber in an orange jumpsuit remotely joining his uh, 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 arraignment or, or some kind of court proceeding because he was drunk driving. This is where we are on corporate media. When I jokingly opened the show talking about Justin Bieber, it, it really was a joke. I didn't really expect to turn on MSNBC and see them not covering this on a slow news day, but cutting away from a real conversation to talk about it. I, I just don't know what's happening. My friend David Pakman is in the middle of a fundraising campaign to expand his show to five days a week. The David Pakman Show has never been funded by big corporations, but always directly by our audience. And we're asking for your help to expand our show to five days per week. This will allow us to compete head on with the homogenous corporate media that you and I are very tired of. We need to fund extra staff hours, hire a new part timer, upgrade our video editing equipment and pay for more bandwidth. And we're asking for your help. With only eight days remaining, they have raised nearly 50% of their goal. Click the Indiegogo banner at davidpackman.com for all the details on all the great perks that you can get now by supporting the campaign while it lasts. And I try. Oh my God, do I try. First Look, the new media outlet started by Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill, launched on February 10th with a report tying NSA surveillance to U.S. drone strikes. But one media watcher, Lloyd Grove of the Daily Beast, was floating a theory about why more reporters don't want to work for people like Greenwald and Scahill, because they criticize the media. And he had an example. Greenwald criticized New York Times editor Bill Keller for not standing up to those in power. That's not true, according to Lloyd Grove. Quote, that would have come as news to Keller, who in a December 2005 showdown at the Oval Office defied President Bush and his demand that the Times not publish an expose of the NSA's warrantless electronic eavesdropping program. Close quote. But that example doesn't undermine Greenwald's point. It proves it. That story was rather famously held by Keller in the New York Times for over a year due to government pressure. As Keller explained at the time, the White House successfully kept his paper from publishing their report because they insisted the eavesdropping program was legal. The Times, after the 2004 election, eventually printed their expose. Grove suggests that Greenwald isn't attracting high-profile reporters to his project because they are, quote, loath to identify themselves with a worldview that leaves so little room for nuance, close quote. But if the test is whether reporters want to work somewhere that will allow them to publish work whether or not the government likes it, a better question is whether any reporters would want to work for an editor like Bill Keller.
couple of weeks ago, a video surfaced of Republican Congressman Jim Bridenstine complaining about President Obama to a crowd of seniors in his Oklahoma district, one of whom raised her hand. If you didn't quite get that, Obama is an enemy combatant, she said, shipping Muslims into our country, a criminal who should be executed. So, did Bridenstein, sworn upholder of the Constitution and Tea Party stalwart, object? Did he say, ma'am, Mr. Obama and I have conflicting visions for the future of this country, and I will do all in my legislative power to thwart him, but I will not stand here and listen to you espouse violence against the President of the United States. Madam, you should be ashamed of yourself. No, not that. Look, everybody knows the lawlessness of this president. He picks and chooses which laws he's going to enforce or not enforce. He does it by decree. Um, when he can't create a law, or when he can't, when he can't create a law through Congress, then then he uses the the, the you know the bureaucracies in the executive branch to, to create rules and regulations for executive order. When the video emerged online, Bridenstein was obliged to explain himself. Quote. A public figure cannot control what people say in open meetings. I obviously did not condone and I do not approve of grossly inappropriate language. It is outrageous that irresponsible parties would attribute another person's reckless remarks to me. No, Congressman, you misunderstand. What they are attributing to you is your disgraceful failure to confront her, your eagerness to further rile up the crowd, your complicity in blind hatred, and your sullying of your high office is all. But fear not, the media are giving you a pass on this one. As the political center has moved right and the Tea Party to the political fringe, there has been a parallel shift in tolerance for incendiary, vile, and just plain crackpot speech. As recently as 2002, all it took was a wistful contemplation of a segregationist Strom Thurmond presidency to torpedo the career of Senate Republican leader Trent Lott. That was then. A decade later, Newt Gingrich called for the arrest of federal judges, and Alabama Tea Partier reached a congressional nomination runoff, agitating for taking up arms against the IRS, and Michelle Bachman denied the separation of church and state. Far from disqualifying themselves from mainstream political life, they just raked in more campaign money. Congressman and then presidential aspirant Ron Paul in 2010 speaking about the Mexican border fence. It's a penalty against the American people, too. I think this fence business is designed and may well be used against us and keep us in. In economic turmoil, the people want to leave with their capital, and there's capital controls and there's people control. So every time you think of a fence keeping all those bad people out, think about those fences maybe being used against us, keeping us in. And here's his son and current GOP presidential hopeful, Senator Rand Paul, in 2011. With regard to the idea of whether or not you have a right to a health care, you have to realize what that implies. It's not an abstraction. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. And let us not forget AM radio demagogue Rush Limbaugh, who makes millions of dollars a year baiting the silent majority. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke? who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex. What does that make her? Makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. 
What all these outbursts have in common is that they were all said in public, all recorded, and all broadcast, none at any lingering reputational cost to the speaker. This kind of stupidity and poison has become so commonplace, the media scarcely raise an eyebrow. The Jim Bridenstine video showed up on left-leaning sites Slate and Talking Points Memo, and the lefter-leaning Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC, and there it languished in obscurity. Not only did neither the New York Times or CBS Evening News jump on the story of a U.S. congressman declining to disavow the execution of the president, even the Internet shrugged. Meanwhile, this was going viral. It's a baby experiencing her first rainfall. Some things never stop being cute. Why do other things stop being unacceptable? Fox News lately uh, has been in a, a bit of trouble. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how, uh, you know, it might be a little bit past its prime. In fact, Media Matters, that usually tracks Fox News, said, the war on Fox is over. We have won. Uh, because the whole point was to point out that Fox News is a propaganda unit uh, for the Republican Party, and that mission is fairly well accomplished. Well, in fact, Frank Rich wrote a very large article in New York Magazine about this, and he made some really good points that I wanted to share with you. Now, understand, yes, Fox News... Uh, beat CNN and MSNBC in the ratings. In fact, they beat them uh, combined. So give them credit on that. There's no question about that. But when you look into who's watching them, and you get a sense of perspective and context, and whether they're having a political effect, mm, that's a different story. So first interesting fact that Rich points out, that in between 1952 and 1988, Republicans had won seven out of ten presidential elections. They were doing pretty well. Now, uh, since the rise of conservative radio and then Fox News, which goes, dates back to 92, you had Rush Limbaugh already uh, ascended at that point, and then Fox News comes in in 96. Well, Democrats have won five out of the six popular votes since that time. Okay, So, mm, not as well. Obviously, Al Gore won the popular vote, and Bush became president anyway. But winning five out of the six popular votes, obviously, the Democratic Party a little bit more popular. So if their aim was to make sure the Republicans win, well, it's a mixed record at best, right? Although Fox News, of course, had a huge role to play in 2000 in making sure Bush got the presidency, even though he did not win the presidency, either the popular vote or the electoral vote, based on a full recount of Florida. Now, uh, when you look at present day, you see that they still have over a million primetime viewers. Well, that's not bad, especially compared to their competition. CNN has 568,000 primetime viewers, so they're getting their ass handed to them by Fox News. So, so far, not bad. But to give you a sense of pr perspective, CBS Evening News, which is the lowest rated of all the evening news broadcasts, has 8 million primetime viewers. Okay? So, now look, that's not to say that CBS Evening News or the other broadcasts are even larger are, are 
very important either at this point. I'm not sure how many people pay attention to them uh, as well. And that's always been the case that the evening news was much larger than anything on cable news, right? I understand that, but it does give you some context. Now we get to the beef. Now, the last time we checked in on Fox News, we only had the number for Bill O'Reilly's uh, audience, and we knew that their average age back in 06 was 71 years old. So that's the number we'd been using. Well, now we have a number for their current average age, for the entire network. Well, it's younger than O'Reilly's audience. Of course, you've got the Megyn Kellys, you've got the daytime programming, you've got the morning show. Younger people watch that, of course. So the average age is... 68. 68 years old. Now, that audience isn't getting any younger, even though they're moving Megyn Kelly to prime time and she's not 90 years old. No, it's actually getting older. You know that last year, the average age of the Fox audience grew by two years? In one year, their average age grew by two years. <laughs> Good luck to you, brother. Good luck to you. In fact, Frank Rich says, with a median viewer age now at 68, according to Nielsen data through mid-January, Fox is, in essence, a retirement community. Okay. Now, of course, I love that point, partly because I made it seven years ago. No, now eight years ago. Let's go to a quote by me <laughs> in 2006. So it turns out this big, bad, powerful O'Reilly is basically doing a show at a senior citizen center. <laughs> All right. Hey, look. Um, great and sometimes mediocre minds think alike. So, uh, Frank Rich, I'm right there with you, brother. I've been with you all along. So that was, of course, O'Reilly's audience of 71 that I was referring to back then. Now, one more fun fact before we leave you on this. What percentage of their audience is black? Now, this is good. Hang in there. First of all, MSNBC does much better than the national average. 25% uh, of their viewers are African-Americans. Now, that makes sense because they have a lot of African-American hosts. They give African-Americans a voice. So that's very sensible. CNN is a little higher than national average, 14%. That's good. Broadcast networks are right around the national average. 12% of their viewers are black. Uh, now, here comes the Republicans and Fox News. Mitt Romney got 2% of the black vote. Well played. Okay. Well, so that's disastrous. How about Fox News? 1.1% of their audience is black. Awesome. Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. This is a follow-up to the idea of personhood and a response to Dirk from Madison. Hi, Jay. This is Dirk from Madison. I wonder how you automatically assume that only philosophy, ethics, or even theology, as the case may be, to the exclusion of science, can inform us about personhood. Whether something is living or alive is mostly a scientific concept as is whether something has human DNA or is a member of Homo sapiens. But personhood is an entirely moral concept. It concerns who has moral standing in a community, in other words, who has rights, who has obligations, whose autonomy needs to be protected, and so on. Personhood is not a scientific concept at all. Now, it happens to be the case that in our history, living humans have all generally been persons, that is, we have generally accorded moral standing to human beings. 
But it's also the case that moral standing has not been and is not now an all-or-nothing thing. It didn't used to be the case in America, for example, that all human beings were persons. Only white humans were. And women haven't always had the same moral standing as men. Additionally, children do not have the same moral standing as adults, and many people believe that animals should have at least some moral standing, even if it's not equal to the moral standing of humans or adult humans. But of course, even if we accept that there are different levels of moral standing, we could still think that all of these beings were still persons, in that they all have some minimal amount of rights. So the question really is, what makes a living thing a person? Usually the conditions are things like sentience, consciousness, self-awareness, self-motivated activity, capacity to communicate messages of an indefinite variety, but the minimal conditions for being a person may be just some subset of these. However, being a person is still not the same thing as being a living, living human. Consider someone with anencephaly, a lack of part or all of their brain. Such a child is not conscious, self-aware, or sentient. Generally, such a child is not able to feel pain or pleasure, has no desires, and can only be kept alive, if it can be kept alive at all, by a machine. So is this a person? Or, or consider Terry Schiavo, for example, whose brain had basically been liquefied by the time she was taken off life support and who was only alive in as much as a machine could keep her heart beating. She, too, was not conscious, sentient, or self-aware. So what's the criterion of personhood? It seems that it should at least require consciousness, and maybe more. So then, what about a fetus? Dirk says, Living, unique organism of the species Homo sapiens. Sure sounds like a person to me. Well, it's alive, and it's human. Sounds like a person to me. Well, from that description, it actually doesn't sound like a person to me. First of all, both sperm and eggs are living cells, even before they ever meet. And I don't think anyone wants to say that a sperm is a person or an egg is a person. Furthermore, there's no such thing as the moment of conception. The joining of an egg and a sperm to become a zygote is actually a stretched out process. And then it needs to implant itself into the wall of the uterus. Pinpointing light, life at the quote-unquote moment of conception is not based on science. Furthermore, in the first few weeks, the zygote is just a collection of, of undifferentiated cells. It only even begins to develop a brainstem at the end of the first trimester and is not even capable of consciousness until the beginning of the third trimester. That is science. So I don't think we can even begin to think of a fetus, a, a fetus as a person until the beginning of the third trimester. So that's why I don't think that for most of the time a fetus is a person. Anyway, more of my two cents. Thanks, Jay. A quick note on the next voicemail you're going to hear, the caller is responding to an email that I read into the show in the previous episode that was uh, making the point that any liberals who you know care about sort of human rights and not killing and murdering people should boycott drugs on the basis not so much of you know protecting your own life or health or well-being or whatever, but realizing that the money spent on drugs goes ultimately to fund the incredible violence that takes place in places like Mexico and Colombia. Hi, Jay. This is Jamie in Cincinnati. I wanted to comment on a 
Javier is all about a boycott on drugs. You know, everything he said was was right, and I agree with that. And you know, in theory, uh, it's great. You know, those would all be um, great changes, and even the idea of a boycott is 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 a great idea. I just think it's a mistake to think that the word drugs just means marijuana. And it's also a mistake to think that uh, that's the only drug that liberals or anyone for that matter use. Um, I sort of got the impression that, you know, Javier, perhaps because of limited experience, that's what he's thinking of when he thinks about a boycott on drugs, that, you know, marijuana users are going to have to stop using marijuana. You know, even if we are just talking about marijuana, the idea of a boycott would, would be ambitious, but we're not. Um, and in my opinion, a boycott on drugs is impossible. And the idea of shaming drug users, drug users will tell you that shame is a constant facet of their lives. So good luck turning it up. It just seems like so much of the talk around these issues is done by people who have no direct experience with drugs outside of marijuana. And most of the time, at least on the left, their intentions are good. You know, they're absolutely correct when they talk about drug policy and legalization and the horrors it's wrought in Mexico and the discriminatory way the drug laws are enforced. Those are indeed true and important points. But the thing that it leaves out is that a lot of drug users are drug addicts. And unfortunately, the finer points of the effect on the drug trade and the morality of using drugs is simply not going to sway drug addicts out of doing drugs. You know, I'm not criticizing either side. These things do absolutely need to be talked about. But drug addicts, much of the time, have extremely hard lives and most would love to kick their drug habit. And if all that was necessary to do so was to fully grasp the consequences of using drugs in the wider world, they would study that shit if they hadn't already. It just doesn't work that way, and the suggestion is almost, almost offensive. I can say through experience that you can be a person with a drug problem, and at the same time be a person deeply informed and curious about politics in the world. But sadly, the drunks trump your politics, and they trump your moral beliefs, which is one of the reasons of the problem in the first place. So I just wanted to mention that. I mean, I think it's a good idea, and I think it's... Uh, coming from a thoughtful place, but I would just um, maybe like to caution that, you know, there are more drugs than, than marijuana, and people have problems with them. It's just an important, an important thing for people to grasp. Thanks a lot. It was a great show, as, as always. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I played the two messages that I did today in the voicemail section because I, I wanted to com- make a comparison between these two conversations. Uh, you know, the, the conversation on reproductive rights has been going on for a few episodes, and, and the second call was in reaction to a conversation started in the previous episode. But there's a comparison that jumped out uh, at me, and it's a fun one because I get to compare, we'll just say conservatives for short, but we're talking about you know the really hardcore anti-choice activists on the reproductive rights discussion and the drug addicts uh, described by the caller we just heard from. And so, to, you know, hopefully it should be clear, but I'm not, I'm not saying that conservatives are drug addicts, and I'm not saying that drug addicts are conservative, but in this discussion, I see a parallel between the two. And so first of all, as I'm sure you can imagine, I received a, a lot of messages on the reproductive rights question that didn't make it onto the show. So I don't think that this particular argument was said on the show, but just trust me that I received it. People called in and said, you know, I hear the arguments that you're making and, you know, they're okay, but they're not good enough. They're not as airtight as you think they are. And the problem is that they are not going to convince 
an anti-choice activist to change their mind. Therefore, we need a better argument. And I see that as being a very similar argument as the one made by the caller saying, okay, maybe it is a correct idea to say we need to boycott drugs, specifically pot, because of how much it influences really terrible violence in other places. And so it makes it completely immoral to knowingly support that system. But then he points out that drug addicts can't make that decision. And so, so the argument is, you know, right, but maybe flawed or it doesn't, you know, we need to have an understanding that not everyone can do that. And I think that, you know, there is absolute validity to making that point, both actually, that, yeah, you can't convince some people to go along for a variety of reasons. But to point that out sort of misses the point of how politics works. In politics, you don't need to convince those people who are diametrically opposed to you or who are incapable of going along with your way of thinking. You need, you know, if the system worked, so you needed somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% to have the, you know, the public influence the politics and, and change policy that way, then that's all you need. And so the way actual political and issue campaigns work is you divide up all the people into three groups, ours, theirs, and the people in the middle. And then you campaign in a targeted way where you pretty much ignore the people on the other side because it's a waste of energy. You, you sh make sure that your own side is shored up and then you go for the middle. You go for those undecided people. So in response directly to the message we just heard, you know, the, the idea of boycotting pot or any other drugs isn't directed at drug addicts who are, you know, out of control and unable to, you know, rein in their use. Like that's obviously not the point. Uh, the point is to target the, you know, what would be the parallel of the undecideds, people who, you know, use drugs casually and don't realize they're doing any harm. People who haven't started using drugs yet and are deciding whether or not they'd be interested in it. And, you know, anyone on the spectrum who is in control of themselves, that's clearly who, who that's targeting. So, you know, I, I just want to point that out that it goes for any campaign you can think of, any issue or political campaign. You don't have to make an argument so amazingly compelling that it convinces those who are diametrically opposed to your position to change their minds because pretty much that's not going to happen. So whether it's, you know, arguing with someone on their Facebook page about, you know, some asinine political thing they said or any other forum where you express your political ideas, if, if you're arguing with someone, it is not necessarily the point to convince the person you are talking to, but to keep in mind that you can be convincing other people, third parties who just witness the conversation and can, you know, take your arguments and have them influence their own way of thinking. So whether it's dealing with hardcore conservative pro-life activists or drug addicts, the arguments being made, you know, relating to these issues can function perfectly well as they need to without actually necessarily impacting those at the very extremities of the discussion. 
So that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. That is the single most powerful thing you can do to help us spread the word. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our sad stories And wonder